Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh. Powerful conversations helping you reconnect with your purpose. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Jade Saab. Jade is an entrepreneur and experienced HR consultant who has worked with clients ranging from small third sector organisations to large multinationals. You're a speaker and a writer and you recently co-founded Reformer, an online magazine created by the needs for greater equality, liberty and diversity across the world. Fantastic. Jade, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. You're absolutely welcome. You're absolutely welcome. Um, I'm very much looking forward to this. Um, yeah. I know that you have some strong views on things. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and, That's an uh, understatement, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll see if we can uh, perhaps elicit some of those from you. So yeah. we'll, we'll see. Excited. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Perfect. So it would be great if we could uh, open up by hearing about, you know, your background yeah. and uh, and your, your upbringing, I suppose, and I suppose really who you are. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, I think that's one I've been struggling with more recently as well. Uh, where to start? Right. So I, the, the tagline I've been using is I'm Canadian Lebanese. What that means is I was born in Canada, but raised in Lebanon. Uh, I only moved to Edinburgh in 2014, uh, so now I like to think I'm a quarter of Scottish as well. <laughs> and, uh, don't know if you guys will have me for much longer. <laughs> but, uh, so uh, yeah, a bit more about me. Uh, raised in Lebanon, went to school, university there, and kind of started my career in HR there. Uh, I always did have a passion for politics, for uh, the humanities really more than politics, everything from psychology, history, sociology, uh, which for me really is the basis of where I approach everything political. Mm -hmm. uh, but growing up in Lebanon doesn't really give you a lot of uh, room to explore that. Uh, it's it's a really a traditional place, uh, you know, careers there are, you know, doctor, engineer, lawyer, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm one of the first people in the family to go down a non-scientific route and get a business degree. Uh, and, and yeah, that's kind of where my career started. I, I selected a field that's the closest I could get to humanities in a business context, which was human resource management for me. Uh, you know, how people interact within systems, within companies, uh, how they're motivated, how uh, they're managed, how they're even structured within, mm -hmm. you know, the corporation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's kind of where things started for me. Uh, I lasted in the corporate kind of <laughs> domain for three years until actually I was let go from the last company I was in. Uh, they were also going through major transformation. They were being bought over by another company as well. So it was quite a turbulent time. And, uh, and that's when I kind of started with entrepreneurship. Um, so reformer is kind of the third thing I start, although I don't like to look at it as a business, uh, uh -huh. as a startup. For me, it really is about engaging with the passion that I feel I have kind of been denied growing up in Lebanon and kind of that I've denied myself by going with the flow. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of seeing where that takes us now. So <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I mean, how do you think your um, your upbringing and growing up in Lebanon shaped your worldview? So I think it's uh, I look at it as a privilege. So that that's I think the the best place to start. 
being an, Arab na an Arabic native speaker as well, I think has allowed me to see things very differently, mm -hmm. uh, be uh, exposed to different sources of information, yeah. uh, and just being in the region. I mean, especially when I write about things like international relations and global affairs, mm. I like to remind people that I grew up on the receiving end <laughs> of, of you know, uh, foreign policy, yeah. uh, be it the UK, the US, or, or you know, Europe. Or, um, so that is definitely, uh, provided me, I think, with a lot more empathy and ability to understand different viewpoints. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, oddly enough, I think it might could have easily been the other way around and it could have entrenched me in a very different point of view. But uh, combined with growing up in Lebanon is the fact that I did go to an American school and then an American university. Um, I was able to balance that mm -hmm. and, and come out, I like to think, okay from, <laughs> from it. So yeah, um, yeah I think that, that's kind of how my views are, are shaped by it mostly. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. And so like juxtaposing um, Lebanon to say Scotland or Edinburgh, mm. I mean, what are some of the ways in which it, it's different? Well, I think just uh, starting from culture you, mm -hmm. you know it is very independent very individualistic here in scotland uh lebanon is still very family oriented very social oriented uh, i don't know if this is something people can relate to or if it'll even make sense but a common excuse for you not to do something in lebanon would be what would people say about that and you know if you want to break that down it makes zero sense right <laughs> one it's not that people are sitting around waiting to judge you two it shouldn't matter right that's kind of the rational approach to it but it is a very big social policing mechanism in lebanon and i would assume and also a lot of other collectivistic cultures as well mm -hmm. um so it's it's been it's been strange for me to uh it's been more strange for me when I go back to Lebanon than, than coming here. Moving here actually for me was, was quite an easy transition. Mm -hmm. I think because I still identify with a lot of individualistic values. But for example, when I went back to Lebanon earlier uh, this year, I had, uh, well, earlier last year now, mm -hmm. I had a bit of a reverse culture shock where <laughs> I was, how did I live here for 24 years, you know, before yeah. moving here? So it was, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's the biggest difference I think I can think of. Mm -hmm. um, and then also historically, you know, uh, Lebanon having a colonial past, you know, being part from the Ottoman Empire to then becoming a French mandate country. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a young country. Uh, so a lot of developmental aspects within the country we're still experiencing. Uh, it's a country that still uh, has religion very much at the core of it. Uh, it's part of the constitution, so uh, that still plays a major role in society. So you do have these different kind of factions that come into it. And then I think the third level is my experience growing up in Lebanon, going uh, to an American school, an American university, uh, coming from a family that isn't very religious, all of these things. Uh, are, are an interesting cocktail, I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of things there that that I think would be different from from here. Yeah. 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 And and you know, in what 
way do you feel, um, and I don't mean this to sound like perhaps a leading question, <laughs> but to, I suppose to what extent do you feel that you've faced generalizations about your culture when you've come to um, the, you know, sort of the UK? Yeah, uh, I think the, <laughs> the biggest shock factor for me, it, it wasn't about generalizations, it was, it was the general lack of information that, that uh, that people would come seeking from me. Huh. Um, you know, growing up in Lebanon, seeing, you know, watching Western news, watching Western movies, you just kind of assume that, that and the obsession that the West seems to have in the Middle East, you assume they know a lot more about it. You know, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, these are, these are the people's politicians, quote unquote, making these decisions. Yeah. So you would assume that the people have a say or are more informed about what's happening. And that was the biggest shock for me. It was that people genuinely were curious to know. And I had, I think, just assumed that people would know, hmm. uh, saying how much of the Middle East is in the news and, and, and how much is going on in the Middle East. Um, so it wasn't about being grouped. It was about... Uh, for me, knowing where to start with others in terms of how do I break down the Middle East to someone who doesn't <laughs> know much about it? Yeah. Uh, where do I start? Where where do I yeah? Like how do you tackle such a such a big topic? You know, I think it would be the same if I went you know tell me about Scottish history. You know, where <laughs> where do you begin? Or tell me about the the history of the UK or even European history. You know, it yeah. is it is an entire region. Uh, where do you start with that, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so that was a bit, that was, the, that was the tipping point, I would say. And that's really what encouraged me to start writing mm -hmm. is initially, is, is realizing, wow, there is a lot, there is a big gap here in knowledge. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where it started. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, so when, when you were in um, Lebanon, like the, the media and the news information that's being fed to you, I mean, is it, is it about local issues? Is it about global issues? And how does, does that differ? Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's interesting because the local is the global in a way. <laughs> so, so, you know, like uh, Syria, you know, uh, Syria borders Lebanon on two sides. So, mm. so when people are talking about what's happening in Syria, you're talking about what's happening <laughs> next door. Yeah. And, and if you look at the map at Lebanon, Lebanon is a very uh, small country. You know, you drive from Beirut to Damascus and I think it's an hour and a half. So you're mm. really talking about, you know, the global being the local. You know, when uh, in 2003, uh, the Iraq invasion happened, you know, a lot of Iraqi refugees came to Lebanon as well. So, so it's really hard to differentiate that. Uh, local politics would be what's happening within our parliament, but because Lebanon has always been kind of on the forefront of these global issues, mm -hmm. it's impossible to, to exclude these uh, regional power dynamics. You know, you have political parties in Lebanon aligned with certain regional players, so, so it's almost like there is no line there to the extent where it comes at the expense of local political engagement and, and things as basic as human rights, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Lebanon still has rampant power cuts, you know, and, and that's still not something that's being addressed because 
what the political discourse is about is about what's happening in Syria and, mm. and what Saudi Arabia has decided or what Iran is doing now or you know what's going on. So it really stops people from engaging on, on, a, on a personal and individual level with, uh, with politics. It removes the sense of agency, which I think is definitely required if you want to have a healthy kind of political environment. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the big media differences is, of course, the viewpoint, you know, uh, being a small country with, with we don't really have an international agenda. <laughs> we, it's hard to, um, so international agendas affect us. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of the media is kind of, has a lot of cynicism to it. And then as well as the way media is covered. So uh, news uh, in the Middle East is, is not as censored as it is here. Yeah. So you do get raw footage of war zones. You do get, you know, quite gruesome coverage because mm. it is what's happening. You know, that is the news. You know, when, when let's say uh, uh, an explosion goes off, you know, that, that is the news. It is the news that's happening, you know, three neighborhoods down or, or all of that. So mm -hmm. it's a lot more real, if, yeah. if that's uh, fair to say, you know, uh, not saying that distance creates apathy, but it's mm -hmm. easier to, to kind of manage that than when it's happening in your backyard. Of course. You know? yeah. so, it's, uh, so, so that's one of the major differences mm -hmm. uh, as well. Um, so I, I remember even growing up, you know, you, you're exposed to these images and uh, it definitely makes you become a bit of a, uh, you know, I don't want to say rougher person, but, it, but it, it makes you understand the extent of reality around you. Mm -hmm. You know, what's on the line when, when people elsewhere are making decisions, yeah. uh, which is a bit of a, of a hard hitting fact. Mm -hmm. So. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it's uh, you know for me it was it was um, so interesting when we were speaking earlier off camera. You were saying about how you might hear something like a firework, mm. and it was you. You're I suppose your immediate instinct is to think that that was like a bomb going off or something. Yeah, like so that, it's it's not that. It's it's just uh, I think because growing up there, you you normalize you know, these yeah. things, these things that would otherwise seem violent and barbaric and, and you know, all of that, they, they do kind of fall into the backdrop. Mm. Uh, and you do that unconsciously. You, mm -hmm. you do build a, a tough exterior for it. So when I moved here and I, I realized this uh, last year during the Fringe, so, so not 2016, 2015 during the Fringe, uh, yeah, the fireworks, I would feel this tension come back. This tension mm -hmm. that is latent in Lebanon because it's just always there. You, you're just uh, kind of always ready for, for something to happen. I don't mean that ready as in a cowboy way, <laughs> you know. I mm. mean ready as in just you understand it's a part of your reality. Yeah. Uh, and you dismiss it or you, you, build the, you build this tolerance to it. And when I moved here, that stopped being my reality. So when I started hearing fireworks, mm. I, I would notice myself kind of uh, stiffen up or tense up and it would be like well why I mean this was 
I would kind of laugh at myself, <laughs> you know, it's, this is, you know, they are fireworks, especially as someone who has a child played with fireworks, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, and uh, I mean, that's abated now, but it's definitely, uh, it was definitely an interesting experience to go through. Yeah. And it just made me realize how much, you know, small things do build up in, you know, growing up in Lebanon, like something simple as having to deal with power cuts or, or you know, bad city planning where you can't go anywhere without being stuck in traffic and, and it's very hard to connect with that until you're out of that environment and mm -hmm. that's something that I kind of enjoyed exploring when I first moved to Edinburgh is uh, are all of these differences in, in the way of being um, you know I mean, I don't even consider Edinburgh a city. I call it a town in denial, you know, uh, compared to, to Beirut, which is a city of, you know, 1.5 million in yeah. a very small, congested place. Wow. Uh, you're talking about half a million people here, something like yeah. that, with really green pastures. You know, you're never five, five minutes further than the closest park, <laughs> which I love. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it has allowed me with a lot of room to explore myself in a very different environment which mm -hmm. i've i've thoroughly enjoyed actually uh yeah yeah <laughs> amazing to hear <laughs> yeah yeah okay so it would be really good um to hear about the work that you're you're currently doing yeah. um with reformer and i suppose how it, it all kind of came to be yeah so so we started reformer uh i think we're in our six months now so so quite recently um you know, like I said, politics was always something I was interested in, but always kind of threw, threw in the background to kind of pursue a, a professional or semi-professional career, whatever you want to call it. Um, and ever since moving here, like I said, just having the shock of seeing people, you know, hungry for information, I decided, well, there's some, something to work with. Mm -hmm. uh, and I met some great people here that encouraged me to do this, and I've started Reformer. Uh, with Gavin, Gavin Morris, who's uh, who just really kind of, we both click on, on a political level, not that we share the same views, but mm -hmm. but we, we have the same passion to discourse and decided to, to start with that and, and to just start it up. Uh, but really it was, it was a bit of a reaction to, to everything that went on in 2016 uh, and previously in 2015 to the way things like the refugee crisis was covered uh, and not just to the to the topics tackled but also the way they were covered we noticed a lot of these big uh, names you know the independent the guardian uh, some of which I have written for, they allow people to just contribute. There's no editorial process. There's no fact-checking process, uh, which is not just bad for the reader. It's bad for the writer as well, because that means they're not getting paid for their work. They're not progressing in the work that they're doing. And no one is there to, to help them form a clear and cohesive argument. Um, I mean, one of the biggest kind of tipping points for us, uh, and I always tell the story because it really was such a shock for us. Um, we were reading an article when the UK started, uh, decided to join the bombing coalition in, in Syria. And the article was, uh, you're not on the moral high ground if uh, you oppose the bombing campaign, which I thought there is an argument there potentially. I read the article, 
was a very standard, you know, either with us or against us type of rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But I was curious what else the author had written. And it turned out that the one other article they had written is about men's hygiene products, uh, razors, shaving cream, hair gel, etc. Well, that's not to say that people shouldn't be allowed to write on, on diverse issues, but knowing the processes that these uh, big names have, or the lack of processes, <laughs> when, when you are letting someone publish something that's essentially about taking people's lives, mm -hmm. uh, was, a, was a final straw for us. <laughs> and it's not that we, with a reformer, we want to take a certain viewpoint. It's about we want to be able to, for writers to, to have constructive ideas and put them forward in a cohesive way mm -hmm. where they're not based on kind of these logical fallacies that are outdated and they don't help you uh, engage with something. You know, if I read an article that's you're either with us or against us, mm -hmm. Well, then if I'm against you, then I'm going to tell you, you know, go away. If I'm with you, then I'm going to go, this is brilliant. This <laughs> makes so much sense. Neither of, uh, in neither case have I furthered the debate or, or promoted deeper thought into the issue. Yeah. And that's where Reformer comes in, in terms of the content we produce, uh, but also in terms of the way we, we work with our writers. So our ultimate ga uh, goal is to have Reformer as a co-op. So all, all the funds that we, we hope to raise through our crowdfunding campaign will be uh, reinvested into Reformer, uh, going to the writers after we've covered our costs. Mm -hmm. So we really want people who have good ideas to want to take time out, to, to hash them out, to think them through, to write them in a cohesive way, and we want to be their platform for it, irrespective of you know what, you know what their policy are or what their what their politics is. Yeah. Um, so one of the things we're doing with with our website, which should be live soon, is uh, is at the end of every article, we're giving people the opportunity to write rebuttals to <laughs> articles they speak. Uh, so we want to also move the conversation away from you know nasty comment sections or or one-line retorts, you know? So if there is an idea you don't agree with, we're providing you also with a platform to go, I don't agree with this, this is why, this is a genuine counter-argument. Mm -hmm. We will go through the editorial process with them and we will put it up on the website, you mm -hmm. know? So, so that's definitely what it is we're kind of about. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And I mean, what do you think is the, um, the longer-term vision for it? So that's something we're a bit figuring out as we go. I definitely want to see it grow into uh, the source of information. <laughs> so, so if there is a contentious topic out there, I want someone to come re to Reformer, see the different sides and form their own kind of opinion about it. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, I do want us to become more focused about policy. So ultimately I see us taking the bottom line of going right, if we have this issue we're talking about, what is it the government should be doing about it? Mm -hmm. What is it that we should be pushing? And what is it that us as citizens and voters, etc., that should be thinking about and should be encouraging? So I definitely see it as a way to direct political action as opposed to just 
I read an article that was interesting. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's that's kind of the uh, the for the forefront or, or or the bottom line of it. But again, it is a it is an it, and it will be an iterative process. So we'll see where we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, politics has always seemed to be very kind of top down in yeah. its model. I mean, to, are you trying to get it to a, a, a um, place of more bottom up? It is so. Yeah, this is always a tricky one because <laughs> so, with this one, you're really hitting at, at the core of, of, you know, what is politics? What is the best way yeah. for, for us as societies to organize ourselves? Exactly. And that's something where I personally am still, you know, uh, in on the journey of figuring out. Uh, democracy is definitely a great thing in that the, the official title of it is that it is a bottom-up approach, right? <laughs> is that uh, it is who you're electing, the policies you like, who are getting into office to be implemented. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely, there is a, this big disconnect. Uh, not a lot of people are voting. If you take the US, I think the last uh, presidential elections, 49% of registered voters just didn't show up. You're talking about half the almost half of the population that it, it's a lot better here but then also when you look at places like iceland for example it, it seems to be working quite well there mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot to cover there uh, i definitely would like to see a play uh, us get to a place where people aren't as intimidated to engage with politics and find easy routes to engage with politics uh, beyond just voting, you know, and y you saw that I think in the US elections every four years There's this big hype people go to the polls they vote There's a year of hype before it right with the, the way they they hold their uh, primary elections and Determine their candidates and and then that's it it, it goes uh, But politics really is a process and and it you know the top part of it the top down part of it is that it does impact our life in every way, even if we, we can choose to ignore it. And I think that definitely is a right people should have, you know. Uh, I don't think everyone needs to be uh, totalitarian in the sense of just pursuing politics and, and dedicating their life to it. <laughs> uh, but, but I think the fact that their lives will be impacted by it is inescapable. Um, so it's hard to find that balance of how how do we create politically engaged citizens yeah. or or how do we maybe create is the wrong word how do we encourage yes. politically engaged <laughs> citizens and uh, but how do we do it in a way where they retain their individuality and their independence yeah so that's that's a tough one uh reformer is definitely i think a venue yeah. in which people uh, re-engage with politics in, in hopefully a non-threatening way. Um, but, uh, but it also goes back just to personal you know, interest. Yeah. Uh, we definitely don't want to force reformer down people's throats, <laughs> be, be politically engaged. <laughs> but, uh, but there definitely is a discrepancy, I think, on where people should be in terms of the, their comfort with politics. Yeah. Um, especially in a democratic country, you know, uh, you guys, the, you know, the, the ballot is a lot of things. Uh, people have, you know, 
not to be morbid, fought and died for. Mm -hmm. It is a freedom that not a lot of people have and, and people around the world are still kind of, you know, trying to attain. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's one way. It's strange mm -hmm. to, to see so much disenfranchisement happen yeah. when the tools are there, arguably. They might just need to be refined. But then again, how you refine them is through the political process itself. So it yeah. creates a chicken or the egg situation. <laughs> if, if you're not engaged in politics because you find it daunting and, and you're disenfranchised and you just think it's so far away, but think it should change, your route to change is through politics. So it does create a bit yeah. of a paradox. Yeah, yeah. And I, I suppose a bit of a stalemate situation as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, I mean, the, it's obviously like the millennial generation that are the ones that are going to be the people that are voting you know, in the future. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, discussions and certainly th uh, videos online would suggest that they are quite a disengaged. I mean, you know, we, we probably yeah. slightly fit into this demographic <laughs> as well. But, you know, so, so how does Reformer get them engaged in, in the topic of politics? And have you had um, or do you have much MI at the moment to be able to uh, to be able to, to see who are the people that are consuming the information? Yeah, that's it's always a, a tricky line to kind of tread because uh, you know, we do write about politics, so it's hard to lure people in. <laughs> you know, ultimately, <laughs> that is what we write about. Uh, it's hard to tell people what they should be interested in. Uh, we hope, ultimately, that by providing diverse opinions, that's how people will start getting engaged. Mm -hmm. And with politics, we're not just talking about governance. We're also talking about social issues. Mm -hmm. And that's usually, if the right term is the gateway that people get in. You know, people are interested in everything from abortion rights to racism to feminism to, uh, you know, now with, uh, with the immigration issues. You mm -hmm. know, all of these are social issues mm -hmm. that ultimately get politicized. But I think that's where people's interests really lay. And that's kind of the, you know, the foot in the door for us. Uh, and later on, you start being interested and, and that's something about our articles. We really want them to be action oriented. You know, we yeah. want them to be issue specific and talk about policies. So, you know, when, when let's say you have someone uh, on the liberal front, let's say with, uh, with uh, gay rights and, and they're like, you know what, we, we think things need to be pushed further. Mm -hmm. They come on reform or read an article that says, well, if, if that's your stance, here's a policy you should be looking at, and these are kind of the people working towards this, it starts, you know, it, it leads on to something beyond, like I said, reading a nice article. It, it drives that engagement to go, I didn't know this. I, I you know, it's a bit an educational in that now that you know this is a topic you can engage with uh, personally, how do you engage with it politically? Mm. Um, and then hopefully that drags on. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, I, I'd, it would be good to hear about your own political views, yeah. um, which I know are, <laughs> are, are perhaps uh, unorthodox, yeah. and I suppose the way in which you, you formed these views. Yeah, so I, I take them a bit uh, a bit <laughs> cynically. So I think I think if I was to, to identify with a political view, it would be cynicism, <laughs> which isn't really a, a political view, but I, I like to really 
tackle things at the core and, and, and politics at the end of the day is based on belief, you know. Um, a lot of my, my kind of leftist tendencies, <laughs> if we can call them that, come, come from my belief is that we uh, as you know, common humans do deserve things by virtue of being around, being alive, being born. You know, you have a lot of uh, neoliberal, you know, economically people who are like, no, you don't really deserve anything. You need to work, you know, earn what you get. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't, I don't see them as mutually exclusive. You know, just because you have things doesn't mean that you will work hard. You won't work hard. Um, so that's kind of a bit, if I could summarize the core, how these formed is a bit interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's something I'm kind of still discovering myself. So I, I did grow up in, in a bit of a left-leaning household. So my dad is the kind who has a picture of, of Jesus next to a picture of Che Guevara, you know, on the fridge. And, and we're not a religious household, which, which begs the question, you know, what, what are those two things doing there? <laughs> uh, but I think even when you look at religion, it, it does preach a lot of, you know, the coexistence type of things mm -hmm. that count, you know, uh, it is about sharing, you know, when you, when you sit down on, on a table, you, you, you break bread with someone and pass the bread around, etc. Maybe that's a very limited way of looking <laughs> at it. But, uh, you know, love thy neighbor, you know, all of these things, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments are, are, are based and I think very uh, pure social moral code a lot more than they are, uh, you know, religious code, you know, it, it, they're kind of rational conclusions people will come to. Mm -hmm. um, and then that kind of uh, grew from there. And, and a big part of it is just looking at what's wrong around you and assessing, well, what, what's the cause of this? What, how can we build something better? And, and the answer for me is, well, as long as a few people own a few things and they control a lot of the wealth, then you are going to have these systemic uh, discrepancies in, in social status and mm -hmm. economic status and, and happiness and, and everything that goes through that. Um, this year specifically, and this is where kinda I joke about it, uh, one of my last pieces was, was exploring how I've been recently radicalized. <laughs> and, and it's also a pun about all the literature out there now about, you know, radical Islam and how, how people in general, you know, in, in a, in a kind of terrorist hmm. uh, foreign policy perspective. Uh, so I wrote the piece as if it was me coming out but as a Marxist, so that was so that was really the the playing around with that, and uh, it is a bit of a reactionary stance in the sense that definitely, if you asked me four months ago, how do I identify? It would have been a liberal and a very staunch liberal. Of course, I still believe in a lot of liberal values, uh, things you know, uh, individual freedom, human rights, all of these kind of universal things. Mm -hmm. Um, but I started realizing that I, w I was really being attacked by other people who, who, thought, who identified themselves as liberals simply because I would deviate from what was seen as the liberal norm, 
which is funny to say a thing such as liberal norm because the whole idea around liberalism is that there is no norm. It is about the individual at, its, at the center. Mm -hmm. It is about your own opinion and at the core of that, freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. uh, well, as you saw, as soon as Brexit happened, all the Leave you know, voters were, were you know, thrown into the bigots and racists or uneducated or you know, the old people who aren't going to suffer the consequences. You know? but, but you can't shut down a conversation like that. You can't mm -hmm. alienate more than 50% of your population just because they have a different view. And for me, even though I was definitely in the Remain camp for Brexit, uh, you know, I, I definitely saw the result of failures from the liberal camp, from liberal politicians, etc. And that definitely culminated with, uh, with the results of the US elections. Uh, you know, when you want to run a candidate as Hillary Clinton, as your liberal slash progressive candidate, mm -hmm. who isn't very liberal or progressive, <laughs> then it leaves a lot for, for questioning. And when I started questioning those, I started getting a lot of, of resistance. And I'm like, well, if we don't want to, you know, look at ourselves first, we're creating these scapegoats. Mm -hmm. And it really, it really started making me um, not want to speak about these things. And it pushed me towards this radicalization process <laughs> where I'm like, you know what? I don't identify with you guys anymore. I'm going to be a Marxist now. <laughs> and, and that way, I'm going to say exactly what I want to say. And you guys do you. Because a lot of people who do identify as liberals, I, I think there's a big disconnect with the language, don't even know what, what liberals mean. Mm. And it's funny because a lot of people, when I would say that to them, is, uh, well, we don't understand politics like you do. Well, if you want to be politically engaged, then do explore uh, these, these terms that you think you're basing your opinions on. Yeah. You know, I mean, take it the other way. Imagine someone who doesn't know what fascism means, but then goes around talking about fascism, and then when you explain it to them, goes, oh, <laughs> that's not what I am. Why is it okay for liberals to do that? You know, but then, uh, so it's really important not to, not to say everything should have a label, mm -hmm. but when you are wanting to be politically engaged, right? When you're going out of your way to argue with someone about a point you hold, and they can easily take your argument of, apart just by saying you're using the wrong words. <laughs> the, the words you're using aren't what they mean. Um, you, you, you lose the entire kind of debate. You, you do need a lexicon to, to debate with. Of course with. you do, yeah. And, uh, and that, that kind of doesn't exist anymore. Um, I think definitely it has been due to the politics of the past 50 years. You know, anything on the left, you know, saying you're a Marxist is like, oh my God, you know, what, what, do you like dictators? <laughs> it's like, no, that's completely not what it is. But ever kind of since the collapse of the Soviet Union, you'd have had this unipolar view of the world. And, and liberalism won, right? That was what it is. So liberalism has gained this kind of moral clout, which has lost its value because a lot of your progressive liberal leaders are no longer that, right? These are people who you know, who went for the Iraqi invasion here in the UK, for example, right? 
the Labour government is supposedly on the left, they're supposedly internationalists, etc., invaded a country against UN convention. Uh, yeah, so they've lost that credibility and, and we haven't, as, as citizens, held them accountable to it. Uh, and now we're kind of, that moral cloud is fading <laughs> and we've forgotten what it means to be liberal, what it means to be all these things. Uh, and we're kind of stuck on a sinking ship, I think. <laughs> uh, easily going well it's the iceberg's fault well it's like well you can't really blame the iceberg here can you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah so so uh so that that's kind of the, my whole where my stance has shifted mm-hmm. it is definitely in a comical sense uh definitely economically i i am much more hard left than i think a lot of other people mm-hmm. uh would consider but it's uh yeah, it, it's not the way people see it. You know, a lot of people, yeah. again, we're not educated about well, and, this. And this is really the, the question that I want to ask you. I mean, in your opinion, then, does the responsibility lie with the education system or the individual in order to, um, you know, educate themselves around political nomenclature and, and what the, 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 I mean, the litany of terms actually yeah. mean? I definitely think it's, it's, it's the government's job. This is a public domain, right? If you build a system that sole uh, way of being depends on an informed citizen mm-hmm. uh, and you don't provide that, of course that system is going to collapse. Mm-hmm. So, so it's just self-serving. You know, if you own a car, you're, you need to pump the gas in. You know? and, and if you don't <laughs> fill it with the gas, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So I see it as the same thing. The, the difficulty there is where do you draw the line with what the, what it is the government teaches, yeah. you know? But for me, that's where democracy falls back in play, you know? If, if you do have a, dem- a democratic process of determining what is being taught, then, then that helps, you know? It's, uh, the, you know, these are the catch-22s of, mm-hmm. of democracy. Uh, again, of course, you also have political debates. Do we want a big government? Do we want a small government? But one of my, the first pieces I, I started r- writing last year was about how austerity is killing democracy. And a big argument of that is when you strip out an education system for it to begun, become entirely about creating this uh, producer-consumer unit, <laughs> then of course you're going to lose your political engagement Mm -hmm. and you are going to create a political elite that is shielded from public opinion and can do pretty much whatever they want without accountability because it's just a bunch of people in a room patting each other on the back right you remove the the pitchfork element (laughs) and uh you know when you don't have people I'm not going to take it to the extreme of rioting and, and you know, chasing down politicians with pitchforks. <laughs> but, but if you remove a sense of accountability, then you know what? These are people in power and, and they will do things that they say, think makes, you know, makes sense to them, yeah. but doesn't apply very well to the rest of us. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. 
So it'd be good to hear um, your views on, I suppose, uh, entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, and maybe a bit about your entrepreneurial journey and, and what do you think entrepreneurship in, in Edinburgh and Scotland is like? Yeah, it's, it's definitely been very interesting, especially to, uh, to compare it to my journey in Lebanon. So I started my first company in, I think it was 2013 in Lebanon, uh, before I shut it down to move here in Edinburgh. Um, was, that a, it, was it Achieve? Yeah so, yeah, so it was Achieve, which was an online job platform. And on the back of that, we also provided career guidance services. Mm -hmm. So we'd work with universities to educate students on things like uh, you know, interview prep, uh, how to write a proper CV, how to manage the entire kind of job hunting experience and entering the workforce experience, uh, which can be a bit daunting. Yeah. Um, but also, kind of raising awareness about other options out there for them, entrepreneurship being one of them. Mm -hmm. So we did work with universities and, and that's kind of where my consulting career also starting, my, my independent consulting career. Um, that was very difficult. It was difficult operating uh, in Lebanon. It was difficult being my first startup, you know, rushing into it. We lost a lot of money, a lot more than I would like to admit. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was just very, it had a high personal toll as well. Um, so started that there, difficult to get funding. Lebanon is a culture where you have a lot of high power distance mm -hmm. and working in a company where, or starting a company where you need to approach people in senior positions to talk about your product was just a lot more difficult versus moving to Edinburgh. People here are so much more approachable. You drop them in a LinkedIn message, the reaction isn't, who is this person? You know, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, let's, let's grab a coffee. Let's, of course, not everyone is like this. These are big generalizations, but it was a lot more easier to, to approach. We raised funds a lot easier. The, the support system mm -hmm. available here is a lot better. Although I know a lot of people will say, uh, different things, but of course I'm comparing it to Lebanon here, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's just uh, the ecosystem is is interesting, is more diverse here than I think. Lebanon is really focused on tech entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. which is strange because you would consider as a country dealing with uh, high unemployment rates, you'd want these kind of job producing startups, mm -hmm. while as tech startups, their job is to more automate things and, yeah. and remove the human element of it. <laughs> Whereas here, there's quite a diversity in, in what the products are, what the services are, etc. So it's, uh, it was quite interesting to see that comparison. Yeah. Um, my thoughts on entrepreneurship, I think, have changed over the, the last year with Muscle Cake, which is the company I co-founded here. Uh, and I think with starting reformer as well, I've realized that entrepreneurship might have always been an escape for me, <laughs> where I'm kinda, it's been that middle ground between the corporate life and, my, and me embracing my passion towards writing and politics and you know, being involved in kinda that world or that, that side of things. Uh, so I think for me, it was like just a middle, middle ground place that I passed through. Uh, and this is something I, I debate with a lot, especially as someone who's really keen about social change and political change. 
is whether or not startups and, and entrepreneurship is a mode of change, um, the leftist in me would say no. <laughs> not, to, not to shut that down entirely. Uh, definitely so many, so many good things have come from so social entrepreneurship. You know, in Edinburgh, you have things like Social Bite. You know, you look at yeah. that and you see, you know, this is taking off. This is really going there. And you have mm -hmm. a lot of other similar uh, startups trying to solve these, these, you know, key social issues. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely change does come through entrepreneurship. Yeah. But I'd rather it come through the people we're paying our taxes to, to get it done. <laughs> so <laughs> if I'm if I'm paying someone to get a job done, I want them to get the job done. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. so uh, so that's kind of where where a lot of me and my friends diverge on that <laughs> is that we're paying taxes. It's our job to hold these people accountable to get what we want done done. Yeah. Uh, and if they're not, then that's an issue. And, and building social entrepreneurship will, n I don't think, could ever have the capability to change things at a profound level that government does. Uh, I always take, for example, a vegan exam, uh, you know, a part of this. If, if we're talking about uh, an end to factory farming, let's say, it really takes legislation to end that, you know, mm -hmm. sign a piece of document, put it into law, and that's that. Uh, recently in France, they just banned all plastic, you know, to help. Uh, so, so, you know, I use examples like that to, to kind of show, but we have ways to create these, these, these changes. They might not be as effective or as efficient as we want them to be. They're effective, not efficient. Uh, so let's just tackle that. Let's invest our energies there. Of course, that's a biased response. <laughs> 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 it's good, Joe. It's good. Um, really good to hear your, your views on that, actually. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a, a few questions around about, um, I suppose, purpose and then and then leading on to um, success. Right. And I mean, you're, you're clearly quite a sort of deep philosophical thinker, <laughs> so it, it's going to be really interesting to yeah. hear what your, uh, what your response is. This is the part I'm nervous about. <laughs> I don't want to get into a, uh, you know, what is life question. Well, we'll, 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 see, we'll see how we go. We'll see how we go. So, I mean, the, the first question really ties into, I suppose, the entire theme of the show, and that is, um, you know, what do you think is your purpose? Yeah, yeah, well, that's, uh, that's definitely a tough one. I, I think it's one where I sway quite wildly, where I have days where I'm like, I just want to be able to sit on a bench, read a book and write, to I not just I want to, but I need to change the world. <laughs> you know? So, so it's, it seems like there's no in between, you know, I'm either just in, I want to be, uh, you know, insular in my own bubble, just enjoying my thoughts to things have to change and I need to be the one changing them. <laughs> uh, so, so it's something I struggle with on a, on a personal level. Uh, but I think one of the, the best things is in January last year, um, I went on to this uh, Power of Youth event, which, which I thought would be a laugh to go to, but turned out to be quite a profound thing, which uh, I didn't expect. And, and they asked us to, 
to kind of write that, you know, to, to be uninhibited and, and write what it is we want to see, how we would like to see the world. Mm -hmm. And a big part of my purpose would be, and, it, and I, I guess this is the, the difficult thing to say, it is when it comes to purpose, I think the, the biggest factor of keeping away from it is being inhibited, is we're taught to stay away from these statements of grandeur, right? <laughs> if I yeah. want to change the world yeah. statements. Uh, we're kind of socialized into, you know, get a job, get a degree, do that. And, and people laugh, you know, you, you, you're this one person. And then the funniest thing about it is when you study uh, history, politics, you're always studying people. <laughs> you're <laughs> always studying. It's, it's this weird relationship where uh, you know, you walk down uh, Princess Street and they're all statues of people uh, and then you as an individual is made to feel like you have no worth, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and you start feeling like it's ridiculous to say things like I want to change things, I want to, I want to tackle the world's problems. Um, but that's kind of what it is and, and, and I think my purpose is to remove that inhibition, is, is to to find a way to, to let people, I don't want to be cheesy and say my purpose is to help people find their purpose, because it's not to help them find their purpose, but it's to remove the barriers for them to, to be with themselves, to accept their natural curiosities, their, their natural, uh, you know, the things they want to explore, the things they want to be a part of. Um, and we don't have that right now. Uh, from everything, from politics to education, I, I strongly believe that our, our biggest common denominator is curiosity, mm -hmm. is our drive to want to understand more, is, you know, as a baby, you're wandering about and then your first experience is discipline. <laughs> you know, that, that's, I think that says a lot about human nature when, when you talk about humanity's first experiences being discipline. Don't touch that, don't walk away, stay close to me. And that follows you through life, right? Yeah. Uh, you go through school, this is what you need to know. This is, this is how you engage with things, not here is information, deal with it. Uh, don't climb trees, you know, and, and, then, and then that's where also gender differences come in, you know, uh, women don't sit this way, uh, men can't feel this way, you know, it's all of these things come, and, and we end up creating these systems that overcomplicate the simplest, most basic thing, which is living. Right, you, yeah. you know, there, there, are, there are no, there is no rule book, there's no manual, you know. <laughs> First people didn't go, you know, you had a bunch of people come and determine this is the way things are done. And we've kind of taken it as absolute law. And, and for me, that's, I, I, want, I want to dismantle that all. I want to take it, take it apart and create a space where people can explore life and what life is to them. Uh, not be told what life is, not be coddled. Um, yeah, just, we're all here kinda, what, what's the 
average life expectancy, 80 years, we spend so much of our time stressing out on things that will hold probably no impact whatsoever. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is the cynic in me. <laughs> and yet we, you know, look at all the, you know, psychosocial, psychological issues that we face in our, I mean, I think, you know, going back to your question about millennials, mm -hmm. uh, I think millennials is the generation dealing with the most kind of psychological issue, uh, problems yeah. or, uh, or mental health issues, I think is the, the right way to say that. Mm. And why? You know, why? We, we, mm. we've, we've built these systems, and I think people forget that. People do take them as absolute truth, but we've built them, you know, mm. for, from everything, the, the political system to the economic system. This wasn't here when we showed up. We've created this, we've built this, we've decided that this is what our life should be. But it isn't, yeah. and and that's kind of that. That's what I would say. My my purpose is. It's when everyone is looking there. I want to kind of come in and go. Well, let's just look here for a bit and and see what else there is to work with. There's a lot to work with. I mean, our capacities and individuals, they really are limitless. Uh, you know, the the, thim the simple fact that we can sit down and have this conversation yeah. is mind-boggling. <laughs> you know, is no nothing else does this. Nothing else on this earth yeah. can do this. <laughs> nothing else can sit in a shower and have thoughts about random things, or, or, or not to say that other you know animals don't think, but but the the complexity of our thought, yeah. as far as we know, is is un is unparalleled. Yeah. You know, and and. Let's start there, you know, <laughs> let's start with this amazing thing that kind of sits between our ears and, and let's see where we can take it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think life should be about, is about pushing that boundary is, uh, and pushing it limitlessly to its potential, because I do think it's limitless. Um, you know, within a thousand years, we went from, what's a good example, you know, empires, you know, discussing uh, what, what are gods, you know, uh, to, you know, putting people on the moon, you know, and, and that's <laughs> yeah. a big change in a thousand years. And this has been done in an inhibited kind of situation. Imagine if we remove these inhibitions. Imagine if, if we remove the, the detrimental parts of our systems, mm -hmm. what it is we can truly achieve, both as individuals and as societies. Uh, a good example I like to think is, you know, talking about gender issues, you know, Plato in 300 BC talks about we should just let people do what they are capable of irrespective of a gender. Mm -hmm. I think in the example of the Republic he gives, uh, because it is a dialogue, one of his students asks, uh, so should we let women also participate in the Olympics? And he goes, well, a woman, if a woman can jump a hurdle, then why can't, you know, why, why shouldn't we? <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's just a small thing. So, you know, you know these, are, these are things we have, well, not, not solved, at least on a theoretical level, solved. You know, the, these are, for me, it's frustrating the issues we deal with that I see are still non-issues. And I go, how are we still talking about this as an issue? You know, we're... we're we should be so much ahead of this. We should be disappointed with ourselves that this is still an issue. And I know a lot of people are, and there's a reason why a lot of people do see it as an issue. But, but if we could just 
unlock that, you know, yeah. just, just, and, and the funny thing about these issues is on many levels, they don't have a bearing on the individual, right? Whether or not a woman participates in the Olympics has no bearing on my ability to, to see my potential or to see my, uh, my purpose and to fulfill that purpose. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's where my kind of original liberal stances come from, is that I am very individualistic in that self, in that sense. And, and I do think we need to be looking closer at building a society that empowers that. Yeah. So that's kind of to wrap up what <laughs> the purpose is, is I really, I really wanna, wanna build a society that helps us unlock our individual potentials. Jeez. Okay. Yeah, just oh, <laughs> no, no, sh minor thing, you know. Just <laughs> oh man, that's genuinely, um, definitely the most thorough, probably the most <laughs> verbose um, answer to the question of what is my purpose. <laughs> I, I actually think you probably covered about eight different questions. <laughs> having having said that, um, one of the you know my favorite answers. Um, to date, I mean, like, absolutely right. amazing. <laughs> G genuinely, like, that is such a great answer. You, you covered um, a huge amount in that, but everything that you said was like absolutely on point. Um, yeah, and, and I think you, you gave a real flavour as to what I suppose your own utopian society might look like. Yeah. If you know, it's like uh, I think we would achieve so much more as a species if people welcomed that way of thought yeah yeah and, and I think my biggest concern is that there's no reason not to uh -huh. there there absolutely I don't see a valid barrier and and I'm more than happy to entertain one you know yeah, if, if, yeah, if, yeah. There, if someone wants <laughs> to come up and, and say this is my barrier as to why I don't think someone else should be doing whatever it is they want to be doing yeah. I'm happy to entertain that you know away from you know, we talked about the standards of social moral code, you know, things like the Ten Commandments that are taken as, as, you know, your freedom ends where it infringes on my freedom, things like that. You know, that's kind of the basic law. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see any other reason why, why we can't. So, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, uh, LGBTQ rights and, and you look back in history, you know, to, to Greek history where, where everything, uh, up to and including pedophilia was morally okay. Hmm. Uh, we are the most versatile species out there, and and yet we limit ourselves too much. Of course, I need to say this as a disclaimer. That's not an endorsement of pedophilia. <laughs> 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 you know, just to, just to make sure that that's clear. That's not taken <laughs> out of context. Uh, it's, it's just to show how, how versatile we are. You know, 300 years after the Greeks, the Romans would, would have cups of Greek life going, look at these backwards people, you know? And, mm -hmm. and now we still, we still have these kind of continuous back and throwing, but it doesn't seem to be um, coming up with any tangible process, uh, progress. And, and that's frustrating. And, and that leads to the days where I wake up and I'm like, I just need to retreat to a cave somewhere <laughs> with my books and just, just do that, you know, just yeah. leave the world behind kind of thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> Great stuff. Great stuff. 
we'll we'll uh, we'll move away from purpose for just now <laughs> then. And uh, uh, yeah, this this question is interesting. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? That's an interesting one. Um, oof. I I think. Well, I don't know if this is a piece of advice, but I think it's 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 a way that has formed a lot of of the way I view things. Um, I remember when I first started getting introduced to religion. So I, I, I grew up in a very non-religious household. And the way I, I got introduced to religion is I would go to school and before exams, I would feel, see my colleagues reading small, you know, books. That's what I thought they were at the time. And before exams or, or before quizzes, and then I'd ask them, you know, what is that? And they're like, oh, you read this and, and you do better on exams. And I'm like, deal me in. <laughs> you know, what? this is, why, why do I not know about this? <laughs> right? uh, and then they started asking, well, well, what religion are you? And I'm like, well, I don't know. How do you pray? Well, I don't know. Uh, so I go home and, and I ask my dad, you know, dad, what religion are we? And his response was, we are animals and the best of them. <laughs> the perhaps most Darwinian, you know, possible <laughs> response ever. And I'm like, you know, me being a naive child at the time going, all right. So, so one day I went back to school the next day and my friend's going, so? And I'm like, so? I'm, you know, I'm an animal and the best of them. <laughs> Which, of course, to them and to myself made no sense at the time. But I think it really allowed me to, to explore a lot more varied things than I would have. And, and for me to come up with my own views of religion and the different religious, not just religion and spirituality as well, and, and in yeah. general, my connectedness to whether or not there is a greater being, yeah. you know, and, and whatever it is you, you feel as that. Um, I don't know if that counts as advice. Yeah, <laughs> if, yeah, that's, like uh, <laughs> if that's uh, if that's cheating, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of advice, I think the the nicest thing that I've been exploring about myself is this idea of taking space. You know, growing up in Lebanon uh, and especially in Beirut, you know, in a very congested city, it doesn't allow you to take space to explore yourself, mm. um, be it by just being alone or by just engaging with different things and understanding what your likes and dislikes are, why certain things make you feel a certain way. So the best, uh, the best advice I've been getting is, is to follow through with that, is to try and be more in touch with that and uh, and just explore <coughs> sorry and just explore just uh yeah take it easy i think what is yeah. what i'm trying to get at is, yeah, is yeah. just to remove that that burden we we put on ourselves uh that unnecessary pressure and uh and just sit with ourselves mm -hmm. uh, so i think that that's really the key sit with yourself um and yeah I, I got that as advice actually through through therapy so that, that was uh one of 
I wouldn't say a breakthrough, but one of the things that stuck with me from that process mm -hmm. is sit with yourself and not with your thoughts, but like just, you know, your emotion, the, the feeling behind the thought. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something difficult for me to engage with um, because it's very easy for me to, to run on with, with saving the world, yeah. <laughs> you know, even though I'm not, you know, even when I'm just in the shower, you know, <laughs> scrubbing myself, going, how do I fix the world, <laughs> you know, all right, calm down, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is just, uh, yeah, so that, that's what I would say is sit with yourself is the best advice I've, I've gotten. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm obligated to uh, ask you this question, but right. um, I would ask probably for your concise version, okay. <laughs> <laughs> if that's possible. I'll try. Um, and yeah, so if, if you could change anything in the world, what yeah. would it be and why? Oof. <laughs> you're, you're challenging me. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll take it. If I can change one thing in the world, um, <laughs> I'd like to say parenting, the way parenting is done, I think is very important. Um, you know, you're talking about your first impressions in this world. Um, and I think there are so many people who don't have safe spaces to come back to that safe space being home mm -hmm. uh, due to a lot of misconceptions about raising children, about uh, discipline, about, you know, just all these things about, you know, formative uh, experiences that a child should or shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. um, I think, unfortunately, there's not enough science there. Um, there's, you know, psychology is such a big and respected field. And, and you know, the way children develop is, is such a big way. And, and the primary point of contact and impact is parenting. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people would say education, but, you know, Education does have a, a limited role. You, you know, you do create um, social connections there. You, you do do all of that. But, but ultimately, it's coming back home um, to that sense of family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is maybe a bit of a conservative view. Um, but I do think the family unit is important. And when I say the family unit, I don't necessarily mean it in the conventional way. Uh, I definitely mean it in, in the fact of what, the sense of what makes a home. Um, being able to come back from school or even just having a supportive and nurturing environment, mm -hmm. I think it's definitely the biggest point where things can change and have the potential to change. That goes back to, you know, being ha having more informed parents having more informed people, us being more informed yeah. uh, and ending a lot of these things and, and also, you know, having systems in place that that's where we can counter, you know, negative um, household experiences. You know, these are a lot of places where people who suffer traumas end up 
you know, impacting the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of the highest point of impact, is if we have better parents, we will have better children and we will have a better world. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, re that's a really great answer. Um, it's, the it's the first um, response that I've heard somebody say that, but it yeah. I can absolutely grasp why that is, mm. is so um, imperative. Yeah. yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely a place where I've had mixed experiences with and, yeah. uh, you know, having the supportive and the not supportive element. At the end of the day, humans are fallible. Yeah. And that's, yeah. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say that's unfortunate. I think that's a, that's a great part of, of us being human. It's what makes us human. Yeah. You know, give it another hundred years and then the robots would have taken over. <laughs> then <laughs> maybe we wouldn't have this problem anymore. Yeah. Not that I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I mean, that was a tough question. I had never thought of that before, but parents was the first thing yeah. that came to my mind because I really do think it is the, the number one contact point. Yeah. You know, and it makes all the difference having supportive parents that are you know, encouraging kids to explore, to yeah, understand, exactly. to, to seek uh, and to accept differences versus parents who are not. And, uh, you know that that's where things start that's where you form your values your initial opinions it's very hard to break away from those later on in life yeah excellent <laughs> jade it's been a brilliant interview um you know Thanks. seriously <laughs> uh, thought-provoking you know and like really genuinely fascinating and, and your story and the work that you're now doing i think is absolutely brilliant i hope i haven't bored you too much <laughs> not at all no no i've thoroughly <laughs> genuinely really really uh it's been really brilliant i really really Good. enjoyed it Good. and um i wish you all the best success with uh, reformer and Thanks, look yeah. forward to to seeing where that goes yeah yeah, us too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, there's no, there are no, we're laying the train tracks as we go. But hopefully it, it gets people thinking a lot more about these types of things. Yeah. Not necessarily purpose, but engaged with the things that really do have an impact on our life. Yeah, so yeah. fantastic. <laughs> Jade, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers.